You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Frankie. <laughs> hi, hi, madam. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually the best impression of me that anyone's ever done. Thank you. I, th- I think I could do better. Give me a few weeks. I can really hone it. Cool. What do you think of my moustache? Oh, very good. Was it? Is this grown just for the recording? It's good. Yes. <laughs> I like it. It's good. <laughs> oh, nice to see you in HD, by the way. Is this your new ring light? Yeah. I have a ring light now, yeah. Well, I don't know if I like it because I've... I'm like this. It's got light shining in my eyes. But... That is how light tends to work. Thank you, Adam. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we're back with um, the last in the first series of Agatha Christie's Poirot. And we've got romped through this series, haven't we, really? Big time. But what, what, a, what a few months it's been. What a journey we've been on together. Mm. In the car with Hastings, just yeah. rolling around the countryside on boats. Just seeing the world. We have a catchphrase and everything. We have, oh, well, I say we have, you have been adding to the world of gifts as well in monumentous ways. I mean, it used to be that you put Poirot in as, into a gift search and you got maybe one David Suchet and about 85 Kenneth Branners, maybe a Houston off here and there. Yeah. Now, pff, there's one for every occasion. Damn right. And I also found the existing gifts of Suchet weren't quite as sexy as they should have been. So I like to think that I've uh, contributed to the sexy Suchet pantheon. <laughs> of Poirot gifts. So you're welcome, world. <laughs> That's all Frankie's doing. Yeah. What an amazing human being you are. Stop. Just, thank you for giving me purpose <laughs> of how to live with my endless free time. So, so it's all worked out. <laughs> I'm very excited about this episode because it mm. is, of course, the dream. And I, I don't think I've made any bones about the fact that this is actually my favourite episode of Poirot. It may have come <laughs> up a couple of times. I just love it. I rewatched it just before this call, and it mm-hmm. still, I was still, you know, laughing at the funny bits and swooning at the mystery and swooning at the architecture. Mm. We'll, we'll get into it. We'll we get will. into it. But before we do, is there anything we need to do? Any admin? Yeah, there's a little bit. Um, we occasionally will go on our Instagram account, Labors of Hercule, if you'd like to join the fun on Instagram. Seamless plug. By the way, can I, before you read this out, I am so impressed with the way you've built that up. Oh, thanks very much. <laughs> it's like, I am terrible at social media and you've got like 700 or... Yeah. Followers on that already? Yeah. You're very good at it's this. It's kind of been my job for the last like 20 years. So, not 20 years, <laughs> not that young, <laughs> not that old, not that young. Uh, it, it's, uh, yeah, no, tell you what, the Poirot community on Instagram is very engaged. Mm. So, they are very active, aren't they? They are. Love them all. Bloody love them. And it's been, what a, what a, I'm so just glad to, sh- to have a group of people that I can share photos of David Suchet with and we can all just agree how perfect he is. So, Mm. Very, very blessed. Well, anyway, yet again, this is something else that the world should be grateful for. We now have a great social media <laughs> presence and loads of lovely David Suchet gifts. Well done. Well, well, well done <laughs> us, aren't we? Great. <laughs> 
Um, so we had a few submissions on our Instagram account of things that people would like us to discuss. And they're really little cookies. So the first one is from now. You people with your with your usernames, can you make them easier for me to pronounce? Thank you very much. So it's Becca Momomomo. <laughs> <laughs> various mo's no come on get it right because you might be so it's becca mo 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 <laughs> i've counted there are four mo's uh but rebecca but becca says the evolution of his mustache throughout the seasons mm. discuss well um it's very very bendy mm-hmm. in the first <laughs> in the first few seasons we likened it, it gets to... a bit sort of more to the, to the swan <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, but then it gets very sort of conservative towards the final season, doesn't it? It does. In the end, it's just a straight moustache with like a little flick. A little flick. I wonder if it's an indication of his ageing, um, particularly in the latter, the very last season, uh, where he's, you know, he's he still takes a lot of care in his appearance, but maybe not got, got quite the energy for it as he used to. There's also in this first season, a lot of primping and preening of the moustache. I've got a great gift to go with that. Uh, and mm-hmm. yeah, so <laughs> oh, yeah. he's really perfected the swan face of yeah. the moustache. I think that's the the, bi- the biological term for it, the swan beak of the moustache. Uh, so When I was younger watching this, when it was first on TV, I, I did find the moustache incredibly distracting. And I was like, who has a moustache like that? But then after a while, you, you come to realise it's not just the moustache. It's a representation of his inner perfection coming out. You know, yes. he has to have everything. And and, and kind of establishes him as other as well to this very British mm. little, you know, there are a lot of moustaches in this, but they're all very, you know, brush moustache, very straight, thick, you know, mm. manly Jap moustache. Yeah. He's very cosmopolitan, very <clears throat> continental, isn't yes. he? And it, it just represents that. In fact, the whole moustache thing gets... Um, a, a scene all of its own in this. Plus, yes, that outsider that is pointed out in a in a in a scene very near to that as well. Yes. So, yes. Well, aren't we astute? Oh, there. <laughs> um. So <laughs> the next one is. Oh no, I deleted the one, the wrong one. Sorry, I have to go back into my deleted <laughs> items. Was it promote on reality records? By oh well, now that you mention it, we've got us a great new deal um, <laughs> with reality records. Been signed. Uh, no, so this is from Sebastian Fressage. I assume that's the correct pronunciation. Again, no one tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, it says I really like the furnishings of those years and the apartment of Poirot. And yeah, I mean, couldn't bloody agree more. It's the only reason I want to go back in time. I don't want the war no. or anything like that, you know. And I don't want rationing. Uh, and I, you know, could do with my iPhone. But to be honest, you know, the rest of it is kind of that's all I want to do is I want to walk around stroking furniture like a insane person. I like the idea of us listening to podcasts via gramophone. <laughs> I think that would be quite a quite a glamorous way of I doing it. Quite a few. I'd be having a delivery every morning. You should have a bundle for me. Yeah. Oh, you're back from your that. holidays. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> One's favourite murder. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. And the last submission came from uh, somebody you know quite well. Uh, someone that happens to be Matilda. Really? <laughs> your very own daughter. Yes. <laughs> yes. Your 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 beloved daughter. She asks on a scale of one to ten, how hard does Poirot slay? 
We knew it would have the word and slay the, in there somewhere. <laughs> slay. And the answer is the limit does not exist mm. to his slayers. He is, he is Hawk infinite. the Slayer. <laughs> he is the metal band slayer. Yeah. So much. He is Santa's sleigh. That's what it's just the ultimate sleigh. But um, I'm surprised the message wasn't, could you stop recording at 12.30 p.m., please? I'm trying to sleep. Oh. So- <laughs> sorry, sorry, Matilda. <laughs> Whisper. She's right above me now. She's and sleeping. And it is nearly 1 p.m. And she's, she's still asleep, yeah. Wow. She, she had a busy day yesterday. She's 16. She sleeps at all of that. God, those are the days. Everyone's a nostalgic. <laughs> Apart from for war and rationing. Yeah. So <laughs> access. So that was that was all of our submissions. Thank you, everyone. Lovely. Staying along. <laughs> we also had a review, didn't we? We did. And we do love those. Love reviews. So please, if you would like to join, if you'd like to join the review party and get read out on this very podcast, then please do submit a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know if they all allow reviews, but force one in anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Just scroll it onto your phone with yeah. something pointed. Punch it in um, there. Yeah, <laughs> or just write it into a letter and stuff it into the USB port. Perfect. Eventually it will get to us. <laughs> we had a nice review from Neil Madel on Apple Podcasts. He says, our hosts hit just the right note here. I followed... Oh, no, we don't need to read that bit. No, you read that bit. The... Read it all. No, no, read no, it no, in no. its entirety. No. Please read Ugh. it in its entirety. I followed Adam's classic movie, Casts, for some time. But Frankie is a real delight as co-host. That's very generous, Neil. See, you should be on all my shows. (laughs) Their joint enthusiasm for all things Suchet is infectious, and they structure their approach to each episode extremely well. One minor suggestion. How about the occasional name check for the late Clive Exton for some superb Christie adaptations here? His screenplays are brisk yet comprehensive and do much to enhance the Christie mysteries. I am totally going to dedicate some time to Clive Exton. We mm. kind of wanted to get the momentum going before we started going into yeah. production details and calling people out because, um, you know, we're sort of finding our feet. It took us three episodes to find our format, didn't it? Yeah. But, um, <laughs> um, yeah, biographies and things will do definitely, especially Clive Exton, because not only did was he mainly responsible for this show being a show at all mm-hmm. he also was responsible for Jeeves and Wooster which I just can't get enough of he's a genius uh, also he really really was also he did um an episode of ghost stories for Christmas called stigma and it was mm. set in Avebury and it was all about they took stone up and there's a there's a body of a witch underneath and Ooh. Uh, like a skeleton of someone who's clearly was a witch. Because you're wearing a hat and carry holding a broom. <laughs> <laughs> Stereotypes, no, she, Adam, are very damaging. Actually. No, she was um, a former conservative friend. So. <laughs> <Listress>. <laughs> Thank you for the name, yeah. Um, <laughs> but the lady of the house um, starts uh, getting the same wounds in her hand. Ooh. It's very creepy, and it's a Clive Exton one. Which martyr? This martyr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I love Clive Exton. Definitely needs uh, he needs more reevaluation these days. It seems like all of his best work was sort of seventies, eighties, nineties, 
And he's not really that yeah. talked about these days. But yes, anyway, we will get to him. No, we, we're, yeah, for sure. We are massive fans. And I think although we've not necessarily name checked him in everything, we definitely, you know, have talked about the genius of his of the scripts and the, the adaptations of themselves. Many of them have been done really beautifully. So, yeah, we, more to come on him because we bloody love him. And, and thank you for the agree. review, Neil. Thank you, Neil, for being nice. And yes, I agree. Adam's podcasts are all excellent. And if everyone listening hasn't listened to them, they should listen to them right now. Uh, Attaboy Clarence and Secret History of Hollywood. And so is Frankie's Red and Buried. No one cares about Red Not and Buried. Not Dead and Buried, like her co-host. <laughs> well, you already know the podcast better than she does. So thank you. you can, we can tag you in and she can swap out for a bit. <laughs> anyway, shall we get into this episode? This amazing episode. Yes, please. I would like to ask a question that's slightly unrelated, but sort of related to this. Have you ever had a recurring dream? I'm sure I have. In fact, I know I've dreamed the same dream three or four times because I talked to someone about it. I can't remember exactly what that dream was. Interesting. But have you? Yeah, I've had a couple. Um, there was one period in my life. It's very Dreams are apparently very boring for other people to listen to, so I apologise. But I, I actually find dreams really interesting. Uh, I had a recurring dream when I was younger that a man dressed in a Felix the Cat costume was following me. <laughs> <laughs> like the old timey Felix the cat like comic mm. one you know the guy uh yeah him he ruined my life for a while and then the <laughs> the enduring one I would say when I'm very tired or stressed is I, I call it the spider dream where I dream a spider has uh like is either in my bed or runs up the wall right next to my bed and I physically jump out of the bed like throw back the covers turn the lights on and it takes me a second to realise that I was dreaming. No way. So and you're still having that one? I had, I had that last week. Oh yeah, I had it last week. I hadn't had it for ages and I had it last week. So fun. Mm. But that's still back. Right. Um, well, obviously you have hang-ups that I... I <laughs> <laughs> obviously you need <laughs> to be <laughs> sectioned because you're nuts. So yeah, that, that tracks. <laughs> well, as you may have guessed from that conversation, there is a recurring dream that plays a, a very important part in this episode. For those of you who haven't seen this episode, this is a fantastic one to start on actually mm. because... Although it doesn't introduce the characters, it does have them all there. Um, the, the mystery is phenomenal. Mm. And as I say, it's a gorgeous thing to look at, especially mm. the Art Deco building in which this is set. Yes. The factory is called the Hoover Building. Did you know this? I didn't it's, know that. It's um, in Perryvale in, uh, in Ealing, basically. And it's wow. still there. It's grade two listed. And do they serve breakfast with ale? Can we go there as part of our tour? Or do we bring our own BYO ale? <laughs> BYOA. <laughs> it's, um, do you know, this building was built in 1933, Ooh. which means that this story is set in 1937. So this would have been a brand new building at the time. This story, Obviously, it wasn't built for the story. But... That's very, very cool. I was thinking to myself, if this building was built later than the story, then that would have been quite a fun fact. But <laughs> as it is, just about, just about in time. That just shows how good the, the uh, location scouts were. Should we see what the Whitehaven Four are doing? Yes, please. Because they're all great in this, aren't they? They are. They all have a, a really fun, cool part to play yes. in the mystery. It's great. Yeah, we're back with Miss Lemon. Mm -hmm. She's back and she's feistier than ever. <laughs> She's bitter lemon in this one, I would say. <laughs> Ooh! Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> she is 
for the love of God, Poirot, get the woman a typewriter. She is not enjoying mm-hmm. herself and she's not she's making no bones about it. She needs a new typewriter and it's the bane of her existence currently. So mm-hmm. that's where Miss Lemon's at. <laughs> Ever since last Easter, I've been asking Mr. Poirot for a new typewriter. We found this typewriter in the flat when he moved in. The typewriter was found in a corner when they moved into the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Poirot... Little I love the little burn she gives to Poirot, which is, you know... Mr. Poirot isn't mean, but he is careful. <laughs> that is the polite way of saying that, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. Anyway, so she's <laughs> nagging Poirot because she needs a new typewriter. The, the thing is knackered and types the wrong letters and she struggles daily with it. Hastings, I, I think this might be the coolest Hastings has been in an episode. Not to spoil because later on, my God. Like, do you want to do any more? Manly. He really, really, really like... He does. This is where we see how he got his captain title. He really earns it. Um, but yeah, he at the beginning is just considering a new pair of leather shoes <laughs> and <laughs> opening the post, just chilling out. He's just like, this is the epitome of laid back bachelor Hastings, just having a little chill in, the, in Whitehaven. So Chilling like a villain. This is your chance to invest in a pair of home fit real leather shoes. That's clever. Fit spelled with a PH. <laughs> just return this card and our representatives will call on you. Made to measure shoes, apparently. We'll get to Jap later. He's just the policeman in this, isn't he, really? But he also... How dare you? Well, <laughs> you're damn, damn offensive. offensive. You're damned offensive. <laughs> we got it in there, yeah. Yay! <laughs> Yay, there it is. Um, <laughs> he basically it represents us in this. Yes. Um, more than anything. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, so the story is that Benedict Farley is the owner of Farley Pies, and he has this huge factory that turns out hundreds of thousands of pies every year. And at the beginning of the story, he's opening an all-new wing of the factory so that they can turn out even more pies. The mayor's there, his wife is there, his glamorous wife is there. All of the workers are assembled, including his secretary, Hugo, his daughter, Joanna. They're all there to see this grand moment, and he makes this speech, which is a slightly... It's definitely a Tory speech, I would say. My friends, I hope I may call you my friends. After all, I pay your wages. <laughs> yes, definitely a Tory, pe- Tory speech. Um, I would you say that he's quite pilific? Well, it's a very impressive empire. Oh, that's so much better. Okay, fine. Yeah, that's really good. Mine was tenuous at best. Um, yes, he in his speech, he talks about how they in 1935, they sold more pies than at any other time in history. And then he basically, I did, oh God, I hate myself so much reading back my notes. Um, I wrote, did they share that data via a pie chart? Jesus Christ. Um <laughs> just i'm really sorry everyone um but yeah and then he goes on to yeah very tory to be like oh you're all my friends because i pay you (laughs) you ungrateful swine (laughs) this is the the best response ever all the rich people on the platform go ha 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 and no one else (laughs) yeah all (laughs) All the women in the factory are like you man (laughs) get farlied um anyway so his daughter joanna is played by genuine hollywood royalty big big name here um do you want to do you want to tell everyone who it is Uh, jolie richards jolie richardson jolie richardson i forgot the son yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's only jolie richardson that we can't remember the name (laughs) she's a really big star (laughs) 
Yeah, genuine, genuine big star. There's a red grave in this. Yeah. Yeah. So, there you go. Uh, Jolie Richardson plays his daughter, and while um, Benedict Farley is making his speech, she sneaks out of the door, runs around the side of the factory up to the offices, runs through an abattoir. <laughs> <laughs> to see, to see, does. To see her boyfriend. I mean, she probably did that on purpose to get into the mood. I know that's what I have to do. Yeah, you think the sight of pig's blood is what really gets her going. Mm-hmm. And the smell. Hot. <laughs> Very carry of her. Uh, she, was... she got carried away. <laughs> the worst person on the planet. Um, yeah, and it, she she finally sees her boyfriend who is called Herbert. Mm. What a name. She loves a Herbert. Herbert Chudley. <laughs> Come on! That is that is a hot name. <laughs> he had a Chudley on for her. And she... <laughs> um, he, she finds out, though, that her dad has sacked him because mm. he doesn't want her marrying a guy that works in his own factory. There are other jobs, Herbert. But with your father's bad opinion following me wherever I go... I could really kill him. So Herbert's been fired and Joanna is so angry that she states quite loudly, I could kill him. Classic. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Classic Christian foreshadowing. Yeah, very much so. And just in top tip. We know who's going to die. I was going to say, and also top tip though, if you plan to kill someone, don't say it out loud, very loudly for people to hear. Mm-hmm. Keep that. Just think it, think it as loud as you like, but scream it in your mind. But just don't, yeah, vocalise. Who's <laughs> Benedict Farley? No idea. Oh, isn't he Farley's pies? Pies? We cut to the morning after, maybe. Yeah. Where uh, Poirot receives a letter. Dear sir, Mr. Benedict Farley would like to have the benefit of your advice. If convenient to yourself, he would be glad if you would call upon him at the above address at nine thirty tomorrow Thursday evening. Yours truly, Hugo Cornworthy, secretary. P.S. Please bring this letter with you. Poirot makes a very interesting comment at the end. The letter uh, instructs him to bring the letter with him. Mm. And he asks, why? And indeed, why? Repeat that, if you please, Hastings. Dear sir... No, 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 no. no. Just the postscript. P.S. Please bring this letter with you. Mm. Why? Why? Why, Hastings? An interesting letter. Is it? I thought it was rather dull. Mm, like a little party invite, but they want it back. Yeah, like a little ticket. Mm, very strange. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that, that's enough for Poirot. His, his interest is peaked. He's heard of the Farleys and his empire. Uh, damn, that's good. And uh, they... Damn You're damned offensive. Damned brilliant fun. Uh, so they decide to head on over. Hastings drives him and Hastings is not allowed in for a start. No, access denied. Mm. The butler says, nope, sorry, only one of you, please. I'm sorry, sir. I was instructed to admit only one. Oh, come now. I was instructed most positively, sir. I'm sorry. And the butler leads him in to meet Benedict Farley. It is Benedict, isn't it? (laughs) I have actually invented a drinking game for this episode. Ooh. Every time Poirot says, Monsieur Benedict Farley, (laughs) then take a drink. (laughs) You'll be f***ed. 
I was very, saying, we're recording quickly. this in the middle of the day. This is, could be dangerous. Monsieur Benedict Fali. The denouement, where he spells out what's happened, he says yeah. it like three times ding, a sentence. It's actually really funny. Ding. <laughs> <laughs> Monsieur Benedict Fali. Line him up <laughs> on the bar. Um, but so mm. Poirot gets taken in to see Benedict Fali. And let's just talk about this setting mm. right so it's very significant is that he's not taken into benedict farley's office he's taken into benedict farley's secretary's office now when he gets in there he instantly remarks why are we not in the main office and benedict farley monsieur benedict farley seems to imply that this matter is very private so private he doesn't even want to conduct the business in his main office also this setup in the room is very 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 strange Poirot mm. is seated quite far away from his desk there's almost like an interrogation light lamp on the desk shining in Poirot's eyes, mm. which distracts him quite a lot. Yeah. Can you go on from that? Yeah, it's all very shadowy and very, I wrote German expressionist because I'm a twat. Um, <laughs> and it feels very like he is, as you say, Benedict Farley is seated far away and he's kind of in shadow the whole time. Mm. And you see Poirot struggling and straining against this bright light burning into his poor little retinas mm. and... He, yeah, he and he, he voices his discomfort, but Benedict Farley's not the nicest of guys, uh, I think it's fair to say. You're Hercule Poirot, eh? Monsieur? Sit down. Sit down. Benedict Farley says that he's been having a recurring dream. I have the same dream. Night after night. I'm sitting in my room next to this. Sitting at my desk, writing... There's a clock in there. I look up at it. I see the time. It is exactly 28 minutes past 12. Always the same time. You understand? When I see the time, Poirot, I know I've got to do it. At 28 minutes past 12, I open the second drawer down. On the right of my desk, I take out a revolver, I load it, then I go over to the window. And then? I shoot myself. I just lift the gun to my head and shoot myself. What do you make of that? Could there be any way that someone might use this to kill me? Supposing someone wants to kill me, could they do it this way? Hypnotism, you mean? You see what I'm getting at? Who is it that you suspect of wanting to kill you, monsieur? Nobody. Nobody at all. You had no one specific in mind? Certainly not. I should like to see the scene of this drama. The desk, the clock, the revolver. No, I've told you all there is to tell. There's nothing to see next door. Nevertheless, I should like to see for myself. There is no need. I just want your opinion. But I can hardly have an opinion on such skimpy evidence. There's an end of it, then. I've told you the facts. You can't make anything of it. That closes the matter. You can send me in your bill for a consultation fee. I shall not fail to do so. 
There's a couple of things we need to note quickly. Mm. One is that Benedict Farley is a very ornate-looking gentleman. That's a really nice word for it. <laughs> <laughs> he has he has glasses. He has great big sideburns. He's a very distinct-looking character, isn't he? When you mm. see him, you go, "Wow, he, he's like an old Yorkshire ripper." <laughs> Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's like a he's like a Tory Yorkshire Ripper. <laughs> yeah, he is he is a unique looking individual, shall we say? Like he is the kind of guy that you would love to get in a game of Guess Who because that is an easy one to bloody go through. Does he have mutton chops? Does he have glasses? Yeah, <laughs> completely. Yeah, so he is he is distinctive for sure. Does he tell? Tory jokes. <laughs> Does he make a lot of pies? <laughs> yes. Um, apparently he's blind as a bat, can only see with his glasses. So Poirot, as he's on his way out, he says to Poirot, Oi, by the way, where's my letter that I asked you to bring? Mm-hmm. And Poirot says, oh yeah, sorry, feels in his pocket and gives him this letter. And Benedict Farley opens the letter, says, right, thank you very much, slaps it down and says, right, on your way, Poirot. Poirot gets to the door and then suddenly hesitates. Oh, a thousand pardons, monsieur. What? I have committed a folly, eh? The letter I handed to you just now, it was a letter from my landlord. This is your letter. Why the devil can't you watch what you're doing? He's like, whoops a daisy. I gave you the wrong letter. My bad. That was definitely an accident that that happened. Uh, sorry about that. And it, and he's like, I've just realised I gave you my landlord's letter. My bad. And the, and Benedict Farley's like, oh, 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 be careful next time. Tory, Tory. And so they swap. He swaps the letter back. Um, but then Poirot leaves and says comments to Hastings in the car, something like something weird's going on here, and I have no idea what it is. But he says it in a way more eloquent um, Poirot-esque way. There is something wrong in that house, Hastings. Badly wrong. And I haven't the faintest idea what it is. We cut to the office of Benedict Farley, where there are three individuals waiting to see him. They've been waiting since 12 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse me, sir. Mr. Cornworthy said you might spare us a moment. Huh? What's going on? 12 o'clock, he said. All right, all right. He's a very busy man. About quarter past 12, he comes out of his office and they say, uh, may we have some time with you now? We were supposed to see you about a meeting. We're thinking about forming a union. Benedict Farley kind of sneers at them and goes back into his office, shuts the door. And they wait there for the entire hour. It gets to 1pm and they are you know, a little bit furious, yeah. but can't really do much because they're only butchers. Yeah. Um, then Hugo Cornworthy, great name. who's Benedict Farley's secretary. Yeah, I know, great name ever. <laughs> comes out of his office (laughs) he comes out of his office sees the men waiting and says Mr Tremlett, you still here? We've been here an hour nearly over an hour well I'll go and see what he's up to he's got to sign these anyway so he goes into the office there's instantly a oh my god God, God." he runs straight back out Yes, (laughs) he runs straight back out and says someone called the police, something terrible's happened and what's happened is the dream seems to have come true. Um, Benedict Farley is led on his floor, gun in his hand, having shot himself. The prophecy has been fulfilled. Dun, dun, dun. Good God! For God's sake, someone! Send for the police! 
there's the crime because um you know these men saw Benedict Farley Monsieur Benedict Farley yep. come out of his office and go back in no one else has been in there nope. it's there's no other way into the room obviously this is you know a crime of some kind did he yeah. commit suicide what did his dream come true what was the significance of the dream? And if someone killed him, how did they manage it? Because no one was in or out of the office. It's extraordinarily clever, this one. Oh, oh, I love it. very, very clever. <laughs> it is very, very clever. This is like a locked room mystery without it being in a locked room as such. It's mm-hmm. very, very... She's quite good, Agatha Christie, isn't she? She's all right, she's isn't she? she, she yeah, I think she's going to make it. Yeah, she's a definite... <laughs> she's a six. So then... Six. <laughs> so then... Obviously, this obviously this, the police are called, and we got Jap on the scene, y'all. And he gives Poirot a call. He says, "You better get down here because Benedict Farley's killed himself." I'm at Northway House, Poirot, Benedict Farley's place. I'd like you to come over here if you'd be so kind. Mr. Farley has shot himself. It's quite intricate, isn't it? This investigation, mm. but it's very efficiently done. I mean, it's only 15 minutes of the episode, and then Poirot's like, "I know how it's done." But in order to explain it, in order to like help listeners to understand it, there's a certain amount of geography they kind of need to know about the building itself. Yes. I mean, we haven't talked about the locations of each office. We haven't talked about the way the no. building is shaped on the outside, which is really important. Yes. And the fact that the room itself, the choice of room for his office is commented on by a few people being like, what a weird choice of room for your office because it like just looks at a bloody white wall. Who wants to see that all day? That's weird. Or is it? <laughs> there is, oh God, everything's just there for a reason. It's so clever. There's no, there's no fluff. It's all pointed and necessary. I don't think we should overcomplicate things by talking about the shape of the building and all that kind of thing. No. But I do think it's worth mentioning that the secretary's office that Poirot was shown into when he arrived that night, Hugo Cornworthy's office, is next door to Benedict Farley's office. I think you need to know that. You also need yeah. to know that both offices look out against a giant high white wall. There's nothing outside their window apart from this wall. Yeah. The rest of it, I'm, I think we can only really offer you a sort of a guide yeah you really do have to see it it's kind of visual sorry you know sorry i wasn't one thing as well to note is that the house is above where he lives is above the factory and it's commented by a few Mm. times oh i bet he likes to keep an eye on his employees isn't he being Mm. based up there so and and Mm. later on even it's kind of commented that he has a the, the guy puts it in a really funny way like a supernatural ability to know if things aren't running on time down in the factory he's just like mm-hmm. got that thing so it's all yeah definitely watch it watch it because also it's stunningly beautiful and so art deco mm. the whole factory is just oh perfection mm. um but also wonderful. yeah and also just to get a sense of the scale and positioning of everything like you say because it is uh yeah it's a bit of a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. It does matter as well. Like when you see the building, you'll say, "Ah, oh, right, okay." And when the denouement comes and the explanation arrives, you'll see how the shape of the building itself plays into the crime. Um, yes. Yeah. Anyway, so Poirot is instantly piqued, isn't he? And he is uh, on the case. Yeah. So Poirot sits down with all of the, I suppose you'd call them, persons of interest to establish. Mm-hmm. You know what? Basically, to tell them for a start that hey, I'm involved in this because he he had me round it last night, last week. We're not sure. I was here, and he want he was telling me about this dream. Did you all know about this dream that he was having? Mm. And it turns out that his wife, his very glamorous wife, Mrs. Farnworthy, Farnworthy, 
Farley. Farley, why can't I get... I'm doing a year. I've caught it off you now. It's because you've got Hugo Cornworthy and, and Mr. I can't Farley. think of anything else. <laughs> I can't think of anything else but, yeah, the Cornworthiness <laughs> of him. Uh, so he... Yeah, Mrs. Far, Mrs. Farley says, yes, actually, he did tell me about this dream. It, it really upset him. I told him to go to the doctor, but he didn't go to his usual GP for some reason. He told Poirot he went to a Harley Street specialist. I've already consulted a specialist in Harley Street. And what does this specialist tell you? He was preposterous. He asserted my life is so unbearable to me, I deliberately want to end it. And the doctor's actually there in the room for some reason. He's like, yeah, yeah, he didn't come to me. I didn't know about it either. And his assistant, Cornworthy, who, the greatest name of all time, potentially. Uh, Cornworthy says, I didn't really know about it, but he did tell me to send you the letter that you received. So, yeah, I wasn't really sure what was going on with that. A bit weird. I took down a letter to you at his dictation, but I have no idea why he wanted to consult you. I thought it might have something to do with some business irregularity. Meanwhile, Jolie... Um, Jolie Richardson, uh, she <laughs> is a bit kind of perplexed by the whole thing because although she didn't like her dad or anything, she was like, he would not kill himself. This is really weird. And he didn't believe in dreams or anything like that. He wasn't that kind of guy. So I don't, I never heard any of this. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard such poppycock. Father had no use for dreams and such rubbish. What you can take from that is that the dream was corroborated by his wife. Yes. He, def- he was definitely having the yes. dream. Uh, according to her. Yes, he, he mentioned it to me. It upset him very much. I told him it was indigestion, I'm afraid. Hugo Cornworthy was assigned to send Poirot the letter, mm-hmm. so we know that Mr Farley must have been worried about this dream because all of that stuff is corroborated by two different people now. Yeah. However, when, as you say, Poirot says to... Jolie Richardson, Joanna, um, is this true? She's not buying any of it. But he does ask her a very interesting question. He does ask her about her father's eyesight. How poor was your father's eyesight? He could scarcely see at all, and not without his glasses. His sight had always been bad from a boy. But with these glasses? Oh, he could see all right then, of course. Poirot is instantly uh, suspicious when she says that he could see perfectly with his glasses, couldn't see without them. And you think, why? But then, of course, you remember the scene where Poirot met him earlier in the episode where he gave him the letter and it was the wrong letter. And he did look at it. That's the thing. He had a proper little look of it. So why didn't he notice? Was his eyesight bad without his glasses and with his glasses? Also, he asks Mrs Farley, how many pairs of glasses did he have? Glasses? Uh, well, spectacles. I have no idea. Three, four? <sighs> Apparently he had about three or four pairs. And you got to think, if none of them are working properly for him to check a letter, then that's an issue for his optician that he needs to take up ASOP. I don't think that's the reason why Poirot asked, though. Really? <laughs> In fact, I know it's not. <laughs> but... uh, Jap's asking about possible motives, isn't he? And it turns out that Joanna, Jolie Richardson, is going to inherit everything, basically. The, the works and everything... Mrs. Farley, his wife, will get a quarter of a million pounds free of tax, which in those days is a whacking great sum. So that would be equivalent to 20 million today. Whoa. Yeah, so it's enough to... Yeah, uh, that's to, a lot. Yeah, it's enough to see you through for life. That's, uh, that's a good one. I would definitely kill someone for 20 million. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just like to know sure. someone. <laughs> That'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and then kill them. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you did change your will, didn't you? <laughs> no. 
Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Only joking. <right. laughs> Psych. I'll be back. <laughs> yes. So that is pretty. Other than that, I guess the only other kind of suspicious thing to kind of float around is that he's not generally very well liked. As the impl- they're trying to imply, obviously, it's not just as you know, it's not just money that's a motive here. Potentially, he's he's not a nice guy. You know, Joanna obviously did comment very loudly for everyone to hear that she would happily kill him. And so, yeah, not a nice dude, but lots of money to be had at the end due to his empire. Lots of people would benefit if he was done away with. His wife would get a quarter of a mil. Um, his daughter would be free to marry young man. The young man, Herbert, mm-hmm. you know, would be free to marry Joanna. Chudley. So, yes, there's lots. Yeah, Chudley. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's lots of motives all over the place. What's your favourite pie, by the way? Ooh, that's a really good question. In gen- in life, a life pie, like a savoury or a sweet or both. It's up to you. Wow, what's yours? While well, I'm thinking. You, don't see- you said we didn't like pies. Did I? But when we talked about uh, the meal that he ate with the with the pie, oh, and it's steak and kidney pudding, wasn't it? Yeah, or suet. I suppose. Yeah, I'm not a fan. Okay. Yeah, I'm not a fan of puddings because they're so they stick to your mouth. Fair. Yeah. Okay. But- we were talking about those in the in the pub the other day, and the the main difference is a pudding is made with suet in the pastry, and also it's steamed. boiled. Yeah, steamed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ugh. It's like the the texture of it. It's just <laughs> it's like eating a, a jellyfish or something. But, um, a pie. I really like a chicken and mushroom pie with mm. chips and curry sauce Ooh. and loads of salt. Really good. Showing you showing your northern roots there a little bit. With curry <laughs> sauce. I do I do love a chicken pie. I also like a, a steak pie. Steak steak and ale pie is pretty banging. I think if you put anything in pastry, it's going to taste relatively good. I will probably happily eat it with gravy, <laughs> mash. What a dream! I'll happily eat all of that. I'm not a fan of shortcrust pastry. Interesting. Okay, like a like a chicken pot situation. When when you start eating shortcrust pastry, it just turns to sand in your mouth. You know? <laughs> I think you've eaten some really bad pies. I'm gonna say they have a pie award. You know that? Wow, we should go with this episode <laughs> somehow. <laughs> we're tenuously chloroing <laughs> for next year. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna be. And we're going to be full of pies. <laughs> and ale. we so breakfast. wrecked. I mean, <laughs> yeah. We should call it the Damned Offensive Tour 23. You're damned offensive. Damned offensive. You're damned, 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 damned offensive. Oh, my God. We need to get T-shirts of that, for sure. Show. Um, <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah. Wow. I've not tried that pie. I would like to try that pie. Costco do a really good pie, actually. As you imagine, massive. Frank, Frank <laughs> yeah. introduced me to the delights of Costco a little while ago, didn't you? It's amazing. Yeah. Favorite still, place in the world. Still got my 200 dishwasher tablets. <laughs> I, well, I should hope pie. so. <laughs> <laughs> in this economy, you're not using them all at once. You better save those things. Last Jesus year, Christ. <laughs> as it should um yeah no god there's so many good pies and i like a, i like a sweet pie as well uh a cherry an apple i'll eat anything <laughs> i'll eat anything um so there we go that's my selling point <laughs> my usp <laughs> but yeah but apparently his pies aren't very good actually this is a good opportunity to talk about a thick burn um right at the top where um hastings is reading the letter to Poirot. Miss Lemon says he makes pies. Makes pies? Hastings, to say that Benedict Farley makes pies is like saying that Wagner wrote semiquavers. Well, they're good pies, are they? No, horrible. But there are a great many of them. 
It's a burn, and then there's a burn again, and then <laughs> yeah, burn on the burn. That's like third and fourth degree burns slapped right across, like much like when you eat a pie straight out of the oven and it burns your mouth so horrendously. <laughs> We've all been there, um, and then also later on when they um, when he's talking to Hastings as they arrive at the factory, and uh, he says, "I suppose from here, Farley likes to keep an eye on his employees, no doubt. But it is a pity that such diligence does not improve the quality of his so-called." Delectables. <laughs> Ooh, savage, savage. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, my favorite burn is that um, Wagner one there. And when I when I heard it again today, I was like, oh my god, that's. I wish I could write a gag like that. Quara seems to be focusing in on the window itself and the view from the window. Um, it's very significant that there is nothing outside apart from a giant wall. No one can see into the window. And he makes a remark a few times. You know, I feel sure if that wall could talk, it would tell us something, no? And actually, shout out to Jap, because he, he kind of points out the window by saying, oh, there's no there's no way in other than that door apart from the window, of course. And Poirot looked at it. It's like, yeah, but no one's climbing in through this window, Jap, you idiot. Um, but it is still a point of significance mm-hmm. that we should all remember. Um, I'm wondering how much more of this episode we should spoil. Because I do think, you know, the Doom wants the last 15 minutes. And I think we can point clues out, but yeah. I don't really want to ruin it. Yeah. It's such a good one. I agree. I think we save it. But what we can do instead is talk about Poirot's little wobble with his crisis of confidence about his little grey cells, perhaps, <laughs> <Yes>. instead. <laughs> because... Even it goes to show, do you know what? In this world where uh, imposter syndrome is a real thing, and you can think, I don't know if I'm capable of doing this. Even Poirot, the great Hercule Poirot himself, has moments of doubt in his little grey cells, and they occasionally let him down a little bit. So he loses faith for a while there, but then obviously we know it all. He can turn it around because it's Hercule Poirot. But it is the great bit when he talks to, he's chatting to Hastings about it and he's like, oh, you know, basically like I'm worried that this is a sign that I'm getting old, you know? And how, how does he word it? He's like, I had too much, too living too fast when I was younger. <laughs> oh, <no>. And Hastings <laughs> is like, really? Really? <laughs> but this is not like the great health Hastings. I have given them every chance. They have been cosseted. I have slept to allow them to do their work. I have eaten fish for breakfast. Result, nothing! It'll come, Poirot. The little grey cells have never let you down yet. But is this not an indication, perhaps, of what is in store? A sign that they are weakened by old age and the fast living? Fast living, Poirot? I wouldn't call your life exactly fast. Not now, perhaps, Hastings, but in my youth. Really? Really? You see, one pays Hastings. Eventually, one is called to settle one's account. I say. There he is. There's that wild side, baby. Bad boy Poirot. Fast living. Yeah, look at him go. He's on that caffeine high. Hercule Pyro. <laughs> <laughs> it's that caffeine. He's a caffeine demon, I guess. But yeah, I would imagine a fast living Poirot. Goddamn. But as he's at the end of his tether, he's had fish for breakfast, he's fed his grey cells, he got all the sleep he needed. The solution is just nowhere to be found, and he is at a, at a loss. He can't believe that he's finally, his brain's finally failed him. And it's at that moment that he goes in to see Miss Lemon for another teaser. And it's this inadvertent little moment that gives him the solution. It's beautifully yes. done. It is perfect. And it's also shout out to Miss Lemon for the assist. Do you have the time, please, Miss Lemon? Of course, Mr. Poirot. 
What are you doing, Miss Lemon? It's five to ten, Mr. Poirot. Well, what were you doing out there? If I lean right out, I can just see the church clock. And Miss Lemon opens the window, leans out and stares round to the right. She comes back in and gives him the time and he says, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> and she explains that if I lean right out of the window, I can just see the church clock. And he says, would it not be simpler to wear a watch? She says, I can't. My magnetism upsets them. I love that oh. because... Um, I, her magnetism upsets me a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Same. My <laughs> God, that woman. Yeah, she is pure magnetism. So that makes total sense. So this seemingly random action has given Poirot the solution he needs. And he rushes off because he needs to check one thing before he can nail down who it was and how they did it. He says to uh, Jap to get everyone assembled prompt time the, the following day. And he gives some secret instructions to Hastings and then hands him a pistol. And you're thinking, wow, what's happened? What What? What does all this mean? Yeah. Why am I suddenly so aroused? Yeah. <laughs> suddenly? <Yeah. laughs> Why am I consistently so aroused? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, so the fact that Poirot wants to check first is uh, he just wants to nip down to the factory and check something with um, the workers. He says that, um, and the worker tells him that although Mr. Farley himself has not been to the factory for six or seven years, he always seems to know when they've started the bake on time. Did he come regularly to the factory? No. No, we haven't done that for uh, six or seven years. Well, not regularly. But he seemed to know if we hadn't started the bake on time. In the office, we used to say he had second sight as far as a pork pie was concerned. Well, that was just by way of a joke. This seems to explain everything to Poirot, and he rushes off, and then we have our beautiful denouement. So, yeah. Second pie sight. <laughs> <sighs> wow. <laughs> this episode, though. It is a real banger. And, um, you know, after the crushing low of the king of clubs <laughs> the worst episode ever thank god this series ends on a high <laughs> yeah <laughs> we had problem at sea then king of clubs and then the dream we've gone roller coaster yes absolutely all over the place but we end on a massive high this this episode is fantastic and the ending is brilliant mm. the way he reveals the criminal the miscreant is fantastic and what happens afterwards is also fantastic obviously we're not going to spoil that for you right now we'll talk about that music first later in case you want to go and check it out this is one i would definitely say go away and watch it before you if you haven't seen it, go away and watch it before you listen mm. to us trample all over the ending because it's one of the ones, it's the one that I worked out for myself when I was very young yeah. and I was so happy with myself afterwards. It's like putting a last piece into a jigsaw. Yeah, it is. This, and this is not a comment on the quality of the crime, the mystery, the construction or anything, but this is one that you can definitely solve yourself, I would say. Mm. Um, and all there, it, yeah. Yeah, and it's satisfying to do so. It's not easy. It's just it's like, oh, you really appreciate the genius of the mystery and the construction with this one. Um, what would you rate it? This seems like a silly question, seeing as you've been literally raving about this episode since we started this podcast. <laughs> but um, what would you rate it? It's definitely a 10 for me. This one is, mm. not only is it fantastic to look at, it's brilliantly added. The the Whitehaven four all have, they sparkle in this. It's not just like, you know, one of them's good or three of them are good or yeah. whatever. They're all brilliant. I haven't said much about Jap yet, but Jap yeah. is fantastic in this because he's, well, it must be a murder because you're involved. I, I've, I've come to realise that if you're involved in any way, there's yeah. something wrong here. <laughs> That's and then a great he walks line. around and he's being shown how the crime was committed. He's getting a proper schooling and he's not once snippy or nasty no. or anything like this. He's like, 
I just got to respect you because you are the king of this. Yeah, um, completely. Like you say, he's positioned with us. He's like asking the questions yeah. and being like, what? What are you talking about? That we want to know. Yes. Yeah, it's very cleverly done. And the, the mystery itself is brilliantly done. It's so well constructed. Definitely. It just all falls into place like tumblers. When you realise the movements that people did, why he was taken to the secretary's office the night before, why the light was on, the construction, the way the building mm. looks from the outside, the wall, everything. You know, all of the clues are given to you one by one and you build up this little picture. It's not an impossible one to get. No, I don't think. it's not. It's just beautifully done. It is. For her to have come up with this... Um, for, as a mystery is just is a bit of a marvel it's a bit of a dream so uh yes a 10 for me how about you yeah i i would say definitely nine to ten um only because i i solved this one as well um but as i say not that is nothing to do with the quality of the mystery because it is really good i'm just very very clever no that's not true at all it's just as you say it, it's perfectly constructed it's it's like a master class in a murder mystery it gives you everything you need also even though the mystery itself and the story is really strong the characters are all really strong and interesting as well as you say the whitehaven four are a, a perfect and jap fills the role of us uh, being alongside us because hastings is like on fire in this one like he is like action man in this one mm. so the yeah. jap jap taps in jap tap to take the <laughs> role of asking the questions that we have as the viewer and mm. it's yeah perfectly done you get also as, as well as a really good mystery uh of, you know a dark story you also get some really good comedy and some great moments from uh Poirot and Miss Lemon and everyone so yeah it is an all it's an all-rounder you cannot go wrong with the dream that's an absolute banger and as you say a good one to start with or if you've got a friend that's like oh I've never really watched Poirot I don't know show him this one or Problem at Sea and I think you will get get win them round because yeah it's perfect it's 45 minutes and it's just so clever you get to the end of it and you're like oh I'm so pleased this exists brilliant yes such a good one yes and aesthetically as you say stunning so Mm, yeah it's beautiful to look at well we really need to talk about the ending so shall we skip ahead and if anyone wants to go away and watch this one if you haven't then please do for the three clues at 1450 Poirot gives him the wrong letter Benedict Farley reads the letter, but somehow doesn't realise that it's the wrong one. The letter I handed to you just now, it was a letter from my landlord. This is your letter. Why the devil can't you watch what you're doing? At the 19-minute mark, when Poirot meets the Farley family, Mrs Farley says that she knew about the dream and corroborates the dream narrative. Yes, he, he mentioned it to me. It upset him very much. I told him it was indigestion, I'm afraid. And the last clue comes at about 34 minutes then, and it's when Poirot visits the factory and asks the the worker there about Mr Farley's somewhat uncanny ability to be able to see through the wall somehow to see if the bake started in the factory. But he seemed to know if we hadn't started the bake on time. In the office, we used to say he had second sight as far as a pork pie was concerned. Well, that was just by way of a joke. Interestingly, I've had a couple of messages, actually, one on Instagram and um, just in life, in real life. People have said, I've said, do you watch, people have said that they listen to the podcast without watching the episodes, which I find really interesting. But they never watch them at all. We had a lovely message from Kelly. Um, She said, I love your podcast, even though I've never watched an episode of Poirot in my life. 
which I found really interesting that people are able to tolerate us <laughs> and and find some enjoyment from it without having seen a Poirot. So that's really fascinating. And yeah, other people that I've spoken to have said the same. They're like, oh, no, like, I feel like you guys talk through it well enough that I don't need to. But <laughs> I really think you should because it's really good. <laughs> we're, I don't know if you know this. We're quite big fans of the show. <laughs> so I would recommend yeah. it if you can. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's very sweet. Um, yeah, make sure you watch them. Blimey. <laughs> I should also finish Kelly's message because she did also say, oh no, sorry, we're going off slightly off topic. She said, re-episode three, 20 years ago, I worked near Smithfield Meat Market and there were there was a pub there that served pints with a fry-up breakfast at 6am for all the night shift workers that finished their shift in the morning. I may have had hair of the dog there pr once pre-9am after our work Christmas party. So that was it then. So Kelly's one of us. Poirot and Hastings were on the night shift. That's what it was. That's it. They're always on the night shift. That's how they live in fast, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Design, if you <laughs> no, he'd get it all in his moustache. It would be a disaster. Oh my God, <laughs> stuck to the pomade. <laughs> oh. mm. But thanks for listening. If you want to go and solve it for yourselves, you need to pause it at the 35-minute mark, I would say, when you see Poirot and Hastings enter the building. But go away and solve it. I'm sure you will, because, you know, it, it doesn't take a, a genius to do it. Because Adam, Adam and I both managed it, so <laughs> anyone can. <laughs> the clues are all very economically spread out and efficiently relayed to you. So it's just a really clever one. Uh, so yeah, go enjoy it. And if you want to stick around and hear us talking about the Dunumon, then uh, wait until after the music and we'll see you then. Thank you. And don't forget, if you want to send anything into us, you can email us at bonjour.labelsofhercule.com or you can look, you know, go on Twitter or Instagram, whatever, and just search Labels of Hercule and send us a message because we'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. <laughs> go away now. <laughs> we're back and adam would you like to reveal the killer i guess you can reveal it that it is a murder <laughs> at this point <laughs> it was a murder the killer was hugo cornworthy mr farley's secretary dun 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 hugo cornworthy corn murdery nope that doesn't forget that <laughs> uh yeah <laughs> because because yeah, how how did he do it, Adam? Well, it's, it's very it's very involved, but it's very clever. Okay, basically, Mr. Farley at a set time every day, twelve twenty eight. Yes, roughly. Always, always, always. This is how he knew about the bake. He always opens his window, leans out, and looks at the steam pipe that is just on the wall outside. If the steam is coming out, that means the bake has started. And if it wasn't coming out, that's when the workmen down in the place would get a call. Why hasn't the bake started yet? That's how he knew. Hugo Cornworthy came up with this incredibly clever idea where he would tell Poirot that he was having a dream. That at this time in the morning, he would take a gun out of his drawer and he would shoot himself. He sent Poirot the letter to say, come to my office. He instructed the butler on the door, when Mr. Poirot arrives, show him into the secretary's office and not Mr. Farley's main office. Then he got dressed up like Benedict Farley. He styled his hair the same way. He put on... He bloody Lon Chaney'd it. He Lon Chaney'd it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he shone a light in Poirot's eyes so that Poirot couldn't quite see him as well as maybe he could have done. And he wrote in the letter, bring the letter with you, please, so that I can have the evidence back. Thanks very much. Yes. 
I don't want any, I don't want a letter uh, out there anywhere. So that's how Poirot knows. He, he works out that what has happened is that when Benedict Farley leans out of his window at 12.28 on the day he's killed, Hugo Cornworthy also leans out of his window, shoots him in the head from a few a few metres away, then Mr Farley falls to the floor. So when Hugo Cornworthy comes out of his office and sees the union men waiting there... Mr Tremlett, you still here? We've been here an hour, nearly. Over an hour. Well, I'll go and see what he's up to. He's got to sign these anyway. Walks in, shuts the window, puts the gun in his hand and screams for help. Good God! For God's sake, someone... Send for the police! It's incredibly clever. I'm probably explaining it really badly, but when you see it... No, you're not. You're spot on. Spot on explanation. Well, the reason that he didn't recognise the letter when Poirot gave it to him was that, obviously, he is a man with perfect sight being forced to wear these jam jar glasses and couldn't see the letter properly when Poirot handed it to him. What is the most extraordinary thing about this case? Hmm? Well, the dream, I'd say. If we hadn't got your word for it, Poirot... Exactement. The telling of the dream was vital. Monsieur Benedict Farley received me here in his secretary's room and refused point blank to let me see into his own room just a few feet away. Why did he do that, huh? Because there was something in that room he could not afford to have me see. What? We will come to that. When Monsieur Benedict Farley asked me to return his letter to him, by inadvertence, I handed to him the correspondence from my landlord. One glance should have told him it was a wrong letter. Didn't he have his glasses on? Oh, yes, he had on his glasses. So why did Monsieur Benedict Farley not realise the difference between two totally dissimilar letters? Huh? Because, mes amis, I was in the company of a man with normal eyesight wearing powerful glasses. And such powerful glasses would render a man of normal eyesight practically blind. Is that not so, Doctor? If they were very powerful spectacles, yes. Eh bien! So why was I not allowed to go into Monsieur Benedict Farley's room that night? What was in Monsieur Benedict Farley's room that I was not allowed to see? What was in Monsieur Benedict Farley's own room that Monsieur Benedict Farley did not allow me to see was... Monsieur Benedict Farley. Good God! The real Benedict Farley was in his office that night. So anyway, he takes them into Benedict Farley's office, opens the windows and says, everyone lean out and see what you can see. And then Hastings, who's been sneaking around the building... To, oh, so like Jason Bloody Bourne. He's amazing in this. <laughs> like Bond. He goes oh. into Cornworthy's office and as they're all leaning out, he opens Cornworthy's window, takes out a gun and fires into the air, which instantly sets Cornworthy and, you know, instantly knows the, the game's up. Monsieur Conworthy shoots him and Farley falls to the floor. Remember, there is a blank wall opposite so there can be no witnesses. I know he's probably a bit old now, but can we not get Hugh Fraser to play James Bond? Because, come on, man, he's got the stealth, he's got the suave, he's got the skills with the gun. Like, there's nothing that man can't do. It's perfection. Like, do you know what? There's a really beautiful moment in it as well, because he sneaks in behind the group and then he stands mm -hmm. behind this pillar the at the pillar. top of the stairs. 
Yes. And Poirot sort of walks over and to where the union men were sitting. He's explaining what was happening with the union men on the bench. And he sort of backs up so he can see Hastings, but no one else can. <laughs> and he turns and just gives him a little wink, doesn't he? And it's so yep. beautifully done. You go, it's oh! perfect. <laughs> and you, also, you can just tell that they're both having the time of their lives. There's another mm. problem at sea style. Look, yeah. Let's rehearse this and get this perfect. <laughs> it's great. We're going to do this once. Yeah, yeah. might as well do and it pot- big. <laughs> it's so good. And then once it's revealed that Cornworthy is the killer, mm. we also find out that perhaps he wasn't acting alone yes. in this one. Uh, I, I saw your hesitation when I said, you know, the killer was, because you were kind of, I think you were going to say, killers? But uh, the yeah. killer himself was Cornworthy, but he was in cahoots yes. with Mrs. Farley, who was mm. set to inherit quarter of a mill. And the reason they know this is because she corroborated the dream. Yes. You know, no, he didn't have a dream. Of course he didn't have a dream, no. a recurring dream, where he was going to shoot himself. So it instantly incriminates her. If she yes. says that, yeah, he had this dream, then obviously she was just trying to back up this wild theory that this uh, he was committing suicide because the dream told him to. But there were two people who carried through this fraud. Monsieur Conworthy was one, and the other, Madame Farley... How dare you! So good. So clever. It's bloody brilliant. It's so clever. But it's not even over no. yet. No. This is the best part. <laughs> it's the best. It's, we've got another car chase, people. Sort of. Side car chase. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, side car chase. Yeah. Um, so what happens is um, Cornworthy makes a run for it. He pegs it down the building. And Hastings, God bless him, rugby tackles him at the top of the stairs, I rolls know. all the way down these stone steps trying to get him. But Cornworthy manages to get away. Literally Just corn. so happens that at that moment... Oh, Herbert Chudley. <laughs> he's chugging along. He's chuddling along in his motorbike he's, and sidecar. He's, he's pulled up in his motorbike and sidecar because he's there to elope with Jolie Richardson. Yeah. So she leans out of the window and says, Stop him, Herbert! Stop him! So Herbert, like a mensch, by the way, yeah. on his motorbike, right. chases after Cornworthy, yeah. who seems magnetically drawn to people with boxes. <laughs> by the way, he smashes into a pair of ladies, and he smashes into another guy. It, it was quite Wayne's World too, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the chickens and the glass. and Yeah, yeah it did feel like that. But yeah, a fair play to Chudley, because she's mm. like, get him. And he's like, all right, just get, no questions. <laughs> it's almost like he's been waiting for this opportunity. He's circling the building, waiting for... Someone like a shot. and he chases after him and leaps off the motorbike and like tackles him to yeah. the ground, just belly flops on him, uh, and then yeah. sort of holds him down with his knee and ties him up and pulls his arm back around and everything. And Cornworthy is nabbed at that point. And yeah. Poirot, Jolie Richardson, and Hastings, <laughs> Jolie Richardson, Joanna <laughs> arrive on the scene, and she is just beaming with pride. Well done, sir. That's Herbert. That's Herbert, she says, and it's one of those moments where you go, actually, I kind of fancy Herbert a bit myself at this moment. If she didn't fancy Herbert enough for that mm. particular thing, it's the fact that he turned up to elope with a motorbike and sidecar. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be their wedding vehicle, and goddamn, that's perfect. <laughs> I can totally see why she was into that. Like, where are they eloping to? Scotland? In that motorbike and sidecar? How long is that going to take? Jesus. But no, it's perfect. Um, what? Yeah, good old Herbert saves the day. Well, also... I do feel a little bit bad that he slightly outshone Hastings in that moment. He's like, hey, I just did all the gun stealth stuff and you just let our motorbike. But it's a team effort. We give them a team effort. It was a team effort because they get get him back to the door. Jap is in the midst of 
dragging off Mrs. Farley to prison, and he also takes Cornworthy with him. As as they're being led away, she makes a, a nasty remark at Poirot, yeah. isn't she? Au revoir, Madame Farley. You foreigner. He is instantly cut to the quick, I think, but then com- more than compensated by the fact that enjoy jail, love. Yeah, you silly, <laughs> you silly racist bitch. Uh, yeah, completely. Mm. And that's the case solved. But there's one more thing that Poirot has to take care of before mm. the episode finishes. Oh, and so that good. is making his woman happy. See, Miss Lemon has been banging on at him all the way. I need a new typewriter. I need a new typewriter. So the next scene is Poirot arriving back at Whitehaven Mansions carrying a very heavy box. It's very building up the tension. Miss Lemon sees out the window that he's got the box and she's getting all excited and flustered. <laughs> and she's like, pretends, <laughs> pretends she hasn't seen him and like goes to his de- desk and pretends to be working when he comes in with the box. And he He's all excited too. Everyone's really excited. <laughs> so <laughs> like, good. I've got you a present. And she's like, oh my God. And she looks like she's so happy. Her face is like lit up with excitement. Mm. He plonks the box down and she opens it. And it's not a typewriter, is it, Adam? No. Voila. <sighs> what do you think here, Miss Lemon? It's wonderful. It's... Now, we shall have no more leaning dangerously out of the window to tell the time, yes? It's just what I wanted. <laughs> it's a very nice clock in Poirot's defence. It's uh, the equivalent of you wanting a bike for Christmas and getting, you know, socks. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Completely. So he stands his clock and says, there you go, no more hanging out the window for you. Yes. And he's, <laughs> he was like, see? And then, then she's like, oh, thank you so much. And then he, walks, he walks out the room with Hastings and he's like, it's very easy to keep your staff happy, Hastings. You know, you just got to mm. like, listen to them. <laughs> you know what, Hastings? I'll never be a millionaire. There are two reasons why I should never become... The millionaire. What are they, Poirot? The first. That I should never make the detestable pork pies, huh? And the second, I am too understanding towards my employees. But then the, uh, the, the, the episode finishes with Hastings giving a little chuckle at his eccentric friend and then settling back with a copy of The Sporting Life. And we get a beautifully extended version of Poirot trimming his moustache because presumably... Director's cut. Well, well, this was the last episode of the series and I'm presuming yeah. they probably thought, well, we have to wrap the whole thing up in a nice circular way in case we don't get a second series. So it ends with Poirot preening away at his moustache for quite a long time as well. He's given it yeah. a good old snip while the music builds up it's, uh, it's beautifully done. Perfect ending, absolutely. And we all get a little bit of a moustache whack. We all get to enjoy that <laughs> process. So everyone's happy. I was very happy with that one. But, oh, what an episode. What a series. Did mm. you solve it, listener? Did you get this one? Tell us about it, because I want to hear how you did it, as always. But... Adam, what a journey we've been on with this series. Yeah, it's a shame we're not making any more episodes. Oh, <laughs> ow. Or are we? <laughs> oh, my God, they're breaking up with me on the bloody podcast <laughs> live. What are you, like, bloody Matt Damon and Minnie Driver? Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to come back for series two. And uh, with the addition of, I think we're going to have a few other voices joining us throughout yes. um our remaining run but uh it won't be every episode but we've definitely got people who are champing at the bit to be a part of this 
journey, so it would yeah. be remiss of us not to include other talent from time to time. Exactly. It'll be fun to have good chats and mm. lots of other fun things as we we've got we've got a lot of episodes ahead of us. So if mm -hmm. we continue if we finish the entire collection, then we're gonna be here for a while. So get comfortable mm. everyone. <laughs> Strap in because we're there's here no, for a while. There's no if. I think we're definitely gonna you know, we're definitely gonna do the whole thing. For Waiting sure. for you to get sick of me. <laughs> it won't happen. Mm, we'll see. Move on to bigger and better things. But, be daft. well, did you all enjoy series one? I hope you did. And if you haven't watched it, like some of our listeners, do go and watch it because I think you'll have you'll appreciate this podcast even more. <laughs> it's all about that, really. Um, but it's just a perfect show. And I'm so happy that we do this. This is the best. Yeah, it really is. Also, as well, if, if people are having trouble accessing the episodes, then fear not because uh, when we come back, for our next episode, we'll be telling you how you can join us to watch the episodes uh, while we're podcasting about them. So uh, that's all coming too. We just wanted to get the uh, first season done, really, and find our groove. And hopefully we've done that. Yes, it's going to be a bit different going into the next series because our episodes are getting longer. The the TV show is starting mm. to become feature length. So we're probably not going to go quite into as much detail on the story, the step-by-step -step as we have done. But we're still going to have a lot of fun. We're still going to pull out all the best bits and we're still going to solve some mysteries together. So please come back for the next series. Cool. Well, we'll be back very soon. Yeah, with, um, with Peril at End House. <laughs> a, a story that's so good. They didn't want to boil it down at all. In fact, this is the first feature length, isn't it, really? Yeah. If you count it as such. Because what they did was they split it over two weeks. They, they, they split the story in half. And rightly so as well, because it's one of those stories that... Is, uh, it's so it's good. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's banger after banger with season two. I know that season one has been slightly uneven at times, but it's still been... Incredible. So much gold in there, though. We've been mining mm. for gold and we found plenty of... Poirot specting? Nope. <laughs> like prospecting? Christ. Okay. Well, thank you for putting up with me for this long, listener, for the few stuck through the whole series. And we'll be back soon. Yes, we'll see you very soon for Peril at End House. But for now, au revoir, mes amis. Au revoir. <laughs> If you'd like to keep up to date with what we're doing or get in touch with us, you can follow us on Twitter at Labours Hercule. We're also on Instagram if you like pictures at Labours of Hercule. And if you were born in the 1920s yourself, then you can be all old fashioned and email us at bonjour at thelabourshercule.com. That's it from us. See you next time. Au revoir, mes amis.